Hey everyone, it's Jeremiah here. Today is going to be a little different than normal. This isn't actually a main episode, it's more of a bonus episode. My actual case I'm working on isn't quite ready, and rather than make you guys wait too long as normal, I went ahead and decided to go and release my first Patreon episode from October to you guys. I just want to explain real quick that this is about a supposed or alleged exorcism that happened in Iowa in the early 1900s. It's not an actual true crime type episode or a missing person or murdered person's case. So if that's what you came here to listen to and you don't want to hear anything else, I'm not going to hold it against you if you leave. Otherwise, hopefully you stick around and you do enjoy what you hear. If you do like what you hear and you want to hear more, I do encourage you to check out my Patreon, which is at patreon.com backslash Midwest Mystery Files. I will also put the link in the show notes. And lastly, before the episode starts, you're going to hear a trailer from That's Not Good, a true crime podcast. They are friends of the pod, and I highly encourage you to check them out. And furthermore, I should hopefully be back within a week or two with a main episode. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy this one. Thanks, guys. Hey, guys, this is Hannah. And I'm Amber. And we're That's Not Good, a true crime podcast. Where we talk about everything from true crime, to paranormal, to ghost stories, to weirdness. And we're kind of funny, too. We sure are. Find us on our socials at That's Not Good, a true crime podcast. And wherever you listen to podcasts. Just do it. See you there. Bye. Bye. Hey everyone, Jeremiah here, and welcome to our first bonus episode for Patreon for Midwest Mystery Files. If you're already here on Patreon, you probably know who I am and what I do, so I'm going to skip over the normal introductions and just kind of jump right into things. I do want to note real quick that the bulk of this episode does have a script, although I didn't really write my initial introduction, so if I tend to ramble or seem discombobulated, that's why. But I just wanted to clarify that while the main show does focus on missing and murdered cold cases within the Midwestern United States, I do want to do things a little bit differently around here and still keep the Midwest and mystery vibes up, but maybe talk about some of the stranger occurrences and lore of the Midwest. As such, for my first episode today, and since it's October and I wanted to be a little spooky, I've decided to discuss the possession and exorcism of Anna Eklund. Just a quick background before I get into the whole bulk of the episode. Anna Eklund was a woman from Wisconsin who had allegedly become possessed and was brought to Erling, Iowa in 1928 to have an exorcism performed on her. This particular exorcism is noted as being one of the most documented cases of exorcisms in America, along with the case of Roland Doe, which I will touch on a little bit at the end of the episode, and both those cases are also the inspiration for the novel and subsequent movie, The Exorcist. My main source today is a religious pamphlet called Begone Satan that documents the events that occurred in 1928 in Erling, Iowa. It was first written in 1935 by Father Karl Vogel and was published in German. From what I could tell, it didn't actually come to the U.S. with a translation until about sometime in the 70s. 
but outside of whatever official records the church may have in its archives, it is the most complete documentation of the events that occurred. I also want to specify real quick that while this will read like one long exorcism, it actually occurred in three parts during the year of 1928. The first part being between August 18th and August 26th. The second part being between September 13th and September 20th. And the last part being between December 15th and December 22nd. So with those few things in mind, and with that little bit of explanation, I'm going to go ahead and jump right into today's episode. Anna Eklund, whose real name is believed to be Emma Schmidt, was born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin in 1882 to Father Jacob and an unnamed mother. She was raised in Marathon, Wisconsin, where she was said to be a devout Catholic. It's believed that in 1890, Emma's mother passed away and she was left to live with her father, Jacob. Sources commonly state that Anna first showed signs of possession at the age of 14, apparently accursed by her Aunt Myrna. Myrna had been believed by the local citizens to be a witch, and according to Be Gone Satan, Myrna had cursed Anna's food with magical herbs. Not much was ever publicly documented about this case, including the extent of the possession or signs that Anna showed. What is known is that on June 18, 1912, an exorcism was performed by a man who will become a central figure in this story, and Anna was freed of this particular demonic prison. The man in question was Father Theophilus Reisinger. Born in 1868, Reisinger was a German priest who at age 20 joined the Capuchins, an order of Franciscan monks who lived a life of poverty and prayer, generally preaching for food in their earliest existence. Reisinger immigrated to the United States and practiced in New York City before moving to the Midwest in 1912. The 1912 exorcism would be Father Reisinger's first in what would be a career of alleged exorcisms, with sources stating that he would go on to perform 19 more additional exorcisms in his life. This would make him the go-to expert in 1928, when he would be called upon again to help Anna Eklund. Going back to Anna, after her first exorcism in 1912, she would return to a normal life with her father Jacob and Aunt Myrna passing away sometime after. This normal life, however, would begin to fade, as over time, Anna would again begin to feel a demonic presence inside of her. Despite being a devout Catholic woman, she would soon be unable to attend church, not because of her own conscious behavior, but as Father Vogel wrote in Begotten Satan, quote, she wanted to pray, wanted to go to church, and as usual receive Holy Communion, but some interior hidden power was interfering with her plans. The situation became worse instead of improving. Words cannot express what she had to suffer. She was actually barred from the consolations of the church, torn away from them by force. She could not help herself in any way, and seemed to be in the clutches of some mysterious power. She was conscious of some sinister inner voices that kept on suggesting most disagreeable things to her. These voices tried their utmost to arouse thoughts of the most shameful type within her, and tried to induce her to do things unmentionable, and even to bring her to despair. The poor creature was helpless, and secretly was of the opinion that she would become insane. 
There was times when she felt compelled to shatter her holy water font, when she would have attacked her spiritual advisor and could have suffocated him. There were suggestions urging her to tear down the very house of God. The church, not fully convinced of possession, did not jump on an exorcism right away. And for many years, Anna did suffer while being checked by varying doctors and whatever might have passed for mental health specialists at the time. However, the church did occasionally observe her over the years, and over time did come to the conclusion that she most definitely had to be possessed. To once again read from Begone Satan, quote, The woman understood languages which she had never heard nor read. When the priest spoke the language of the church and blessed her in the Latin tongue, she sensed and understood it at once, and at the same time foamed at the mouth and became enraged about it. When he continued in classical Latin, she regained her former ease. She was conscious at once when someone gave her articles sprinkled with holy water or presented her with things secretly blessed, whereas ordinary, secular objects would leave her perfectly indifferent. Begone Satan stays pretty loose with its overall timeline. A tagline for the pamphlet describes it as being about a woman being tormented by demons from age 16 to age 40. Something corroborated in the text, which is stated as, quote, In short, when after years of trial and observation, she had reached her 40th year, the ecclesiastical authorities were finally convinced that there was a clear case of demonical possession. This implies that as of 1928, when the next exorcism would occur, Anna Eklund had been possessed for 24 years. I'll talk more on this later, or we'll at least try to make sense of it, but if you've been paying even half attention, that timeline doesn't make any sense. I just wanted to note that if you had noticed, I wasn't doing sloppy research, it's really just how it's presented. It was at this juncture in 1928 that Father Theophilus Reisinger would be asked by a Catholic bishop to perform an exorcism on the possessed Anna Eklund once again. At the time of being called up, Father Reisinger was preaching in the town of Erling, a small town in western Iowa. It would so happen that an old friend of Father Reisinger, one Father Joseph Steiger, was the reverend for the local parish, and as such, Reisinger would ask Father Steiger for permission to perform the exorcism within Steiger's parish. Father Reisinger would explain to Father Steiger that the parish and the town of Erling, which boasted a population of about 358 people at the 1930 census, was rural and sparsely populated enough that an exorcism would draw little attention. There was also a group of Franciscan nuns whose convent located outside of Erling would be the perfect place for Anna Eklund to reside and the exorcism to be performed. What would follow in Begone Satan is a bit of dialogue that reads like a poorly planned bait-and-switch and was most likely written by Father Vogel to fill page space. It's not overly important to the overall narrative, but it did crack me up, so I do want to read it. The dialogues, which start with Father Steiger speaking, is as follows. My dear friend, do you really think that Mother Superior would permit anything like that to take place under her convent roof? I don't believe it and it would be altogether out of the question to bring the person into my own house. My dear friend, smilingly replied the father, tell me this one thing. Will you give me your approval, should the mother superior be willing? Well, all right, but only under this condition. 
I do not believe you will have any success at the convent. Thanks for your permission. The case is therefore settled. As the Mother Superior did give her consent from the very beginning, I had already made all the arrangements with her for this case, provided you give your full approval. It just kind of cracks me up, because it just seems like at the end of the whole deal, these are two professional priests, but Father Theophilus Reisinger is just kind of like, ha ha, gotcha. I don't know if you guys find that funny, but I just thought it read funny. Anyway, the agreed upon time for the exorcism would be August of 1928. It was noticed that only Father Steiger, his sister slash housekeeper, and the sisters from the covent were the only people aware of the impending arrival of Anna Eklund, who would arrive by train. Before Father Reisinger could even arrive at the Franciscan covent, signs of Anna's possession would show itself to those who resided within, with a passage from Begone Satan stating, quote, The well-meaning sister in the kitchen had sprinkled holy water over the food on the tray before she carried the supper to the woman. The devil, however, would not be tricked. The possessed woman was aware at once of the presence of the blessed food, and became terribly enraged about it. She purred like a cat, and it was absolutely impossible to make her eat. The blessed food was taken back to the kitchen to be exchanged for unblessed food. Otherwise, the soup bowls and the plates might have been crashed through the window. It was not possible to trick her with any blessed or consecrated article, the very presence of it would bring about such intense sufferings in her as though her very body were encased in glowing coal. All would not go smoothly for the arrival of Father Reisinger either. It was arranged that Father Steiger would pick up Father Reisinger at the train depot by automobile and take him back to the covent. Father Steiger had a brand new automobile that was described as being in tip-top order. On this day, though, the new car would prove to be problematic. The car despite all of Steiger's troubleshooting and best efforts to find a problem, just couldn't seem to reach its normal speed on the way to the depot. Begone Satan states that the distance to the depot was not even worth mentioning, possibly implying that it was short, which Erling does sit on the railroad, but it took the father over two hours to reach the depot to retrieve Father Reisinger. Upon Steiger apologizing and explaining what happened, Father Reisinger would merely state, Quote, my dear friend, I was not wrought up about it at all. I would have been much more surprised if everything had gone smoothly. Difficulties will arise. They must be expected to arise. The devil will try his utmost to foil our plans. While waiting, I prayed constantly that the evil spirit would not be able to harm you, as I suspected that he would try to interfere with your coming. Yes, that he would try to injure you personally. Not taking any further chances, Father Reisinger would bless the car and recite the rosary continuously while en route to the convent. Upon the arrival of the two pastors, little time would be wasted, and the decisive moment would soon arrive. A room had been prepared, and Anna Eklund was placed upon the mattress of an iron bed. Her arm sleeves and her dress were tightly bound to prevent any trick the demons within may attempt, and a selection of the strongest nuns were at the ready to assist if the devil were to make attempts attacking Father Reisinger during the exorcism. Should this happen, the nuns were to hold Anna upon her bed. It would not be long after the exorcism began that the devil would strike. Reportedly, Father Reisinger had hardly begun when Anna's body, with lightning speed, would free itself from its bed 
and from the grasp of the nuns. Anna flew through the air and clung to the wall above the door, as if she was Spider-Man climbing the side of a skyscraper. After a considerable struggle and use of might, Anna would be returned to the bed and once again restrained. This time, with the hands that held her more prepared and ready for another fast move. After the exorcism would resume, Father Reisinger would continue the required prayers, but it would not be long before Anna began to make noise. From her mouth would come a noise that sounded like, quote, a pack of wild beasts had been unleashed upon the earth. The noise was so shrill and so loud that even with the windows closed, the room and the convent in general could not contain it. It would sound out among the neighborhood, and as such, people came running, and soon the entire parish and community knew what was happening in their small, quiet community. The noises, among other things, would carry on throughout the ceremony. When Anna wasn't howling, she was reportedly vomiting the foulest things, despite having hardly eaten. It was said that she could fill a pitcher, sometimes even a bucket, with the expulsions. At times, it would appear to look like vomited macaroni, other times sliced and chewed tobacco leaves. It was reported as one of the foulest stenches known to man. This would happen up to 20 times a day. Father Reisinger, who was already well experienced in these matters, would be the only person to remain steadfast during these events, with Father Steiger and the nuns occasionally having to leave the room. With Reisinger only leaving once in a great while to change his soiled and saturated clothes. When Anna would speak, she would speak in different voices, alerting Father Reisinger to the fact that more than one demon resided inside the young woman. Soon Reisinger would get the first demon to speak. The demon would identify itself to Father Reisinger as being Beelzebub, a high-ranking demon who would state it entered Anna in her fourteenth year at the behest of Satan after Anna was cursed by her father Jacob. It would be noted that Reisinger spoke in multiple languages, including English, Latin, and German, with the demon understanding all of them. He would eventually ask Beelzebub why Jacob had cursed his own daughter, which would yield a reply of, quote, You can ask him yourself. Beelzebub would confirm then that Jacob was one of the demons possessing Anna. Soon after, Beelzebub would go silent, and a new male voice would arise. This would be the former apostle, Judas Iscariot, who it would seem, based on his own admission, was only residing in Anna to drive her to suicide. Judas's time at the surface would be much shorter than Beelzebub, and at the time that he would go silent, Jacob, Anna's father, would finally emerge. Jacob would make the disgusting admission that he had tried to force himself upon his daughter and commit incest, but she had refused him. In anger, he had wished the devil would enter her to commit, quote, every possible sin against chastity. Upon his death, he was sent straight to hell for the sin of giving his daughter to devils. However, Lucifer was apparently impressed with Jacob's disgusting nature and permitted him to possess his daughter to further torture her. After Jacob would come Mina, Anna's aunt and Jacob's mistress. She was also the cause of Anna's first possession when she cursed Anna's food. 
Mina would go on to confess that her damnation came at the hands of helping Jacob commit adultery against his wife, as well as the fact that she was a child murderer, apparently killing her own four children. She would also prove to be one of the nastiest demons in the possession, spitting and cursing at Risinger and Steiger more than any other before her. Something I do want to note real quick is I called her Mina here, and earlier in my reading I called her Myrna. Uh, the name actually is Mina. Uh, apparently I must have accidentally put an R in there in that first part and didn't catch it. So just to clarify that, her name is Mina, not Myrna. Anyway, getting back to things. What's been described as several brats of devils, presumably lower-level demons, would consistently interrupt the exorcism as well, causing Anna to scream and to contort her face and features in unrecognizable ways. Begone Satan spends considerable time talking about how Father Risinger kept the demons at bay and fought them off with prayer, crosses, and holy water. I'm not going to really talk on those things. I'm pretty sure most of these pages were written to fill space. But also, I think we've all seen at least one Possession movie or episode of Supernatural, and we all know these things are bad for demons and for Satan. Over time, influence from the demon's energy would start to affect Father Steiger, who began to become angry about the whole affair and would berate Father Reisinger. Reisinger would prove to be unaffected by this, well aware that evil forces would try to botch the exorcism by focusing on those around him. Eventually, the demons would begin to taunt Steiger, accusing the pain they were suffering at the hand of prayer was caused by him for allowing the exorcism in his parish. Satan himself would threaten Father Steiger repeatedly stating, quote, You will have to suffer for this. To which Father Steiger replied, quote, You can't harm me anyway. I am standing under the protection of Almighty God, and against his power you are absolutely helpless. You detestable hellhound. Satan would continue his threat, stating, quote, Just wait. I'll make you repent that. I'll incite the whole parish against you, and I will calumniate, I think that's what that says, you in such a way that you will no longer be able to defend yourself. You will have to pack up and leave in shame and regret. The father and Satan would continue to have a back and forth that mainly consisted of Father Steiger saying, You can't harm me, and Satan saying, Just you wait. The exchange would end with Satan telling Father Steiger to just wait until Friday. When Friday rolled around, Father Steiger received a call from a local farmer, whose wife was on her deathbed and was requesting for Father Steiger to come administer the last sacraments. The farmer wanted to come pick up the father. However, his car strangely would not start, and as such, Father Steiger was left to drive himself. After Father Steiger was done at the farmer's home, he was driving back to Erling on a road he was quite familiar with. He took great care and caution, keeping Satan's threats in mind. As he neared a bridge over a deep ravine, a dark cloud passed over him, causing everything to go blacker than night. And in the next moment, Father Steiger found himself colliding with the bridge and sending his car into the ravine. Amazingly, though, while the car was smashed to pieces, Father Steiger would manage to crawl out of the wreckage relatively unscathed. Upon returning to the convent and the room where the exorcism was being performed, Father Steiger was met with evil laughter, followed by mockery from Satan, with Satan stating, quote, Today he pulled in his proud neck and was outpointed. I certainly showed him today. 
What about your new auto, that dandy car, which was smashed smithereens? It served you right. Satan would go on to state that death was the intention of the wreck. However, higher powers were able to outperform him. Satan would attempt to cause further havoc by telling the sins of all those present. However, it stated that all people present attended confession prior to the exorcism. Thus, the only sins Satan could reveal had already been confessed, seemingly striking another blow to his plans. Outside of harassing Steiger, demonic forces would also attempt their hand at Father Reisinger. Their attempted trick was to exhaust him, taunting him at night when he slept with the sounds of rats gnawing and the building quaking. Father Reisinger, who is often described as a sort of Catholic superman, could not be stopped though, as he would merely recite bits of exorcism prayer, and it would send whatever was attempting to haunt him fleeing back into the shadows. In the final days of the exorcism, Father Reisinger would begin to feel the toll of the exorcism waning on him. He would begin to tire, but would prove persistent. In the final days, he would use every last bit of willpower to keep himself awake. Going the last three days of the exorcism without intermission, day and night. Begone Satan states that at the end of the 23rd and final day, quote, he had the appearance of a walking corpse, a figure which at any moment might collapse. His own countenance seemed to have aged 20 years during those three weeks. Outside of those in the convent, the people of the parish began to take part in the final days as well, only they did so by attending church, keeping regular church hours, and partaking in voracious prayer. Outside of church, they would take part in private fasting and penance, so as to strengthen the power of their prayer and conviction, and thus strengthening the power of the exorcism. As such, on the final day, the demon's hold would begin to wane as the tortures of the exorcism had become too much for them to handle. They would proceed to tell Father Reisinger they planned to depart Anna's body. Afraid that they may be pulling a fast one on him, Reisinger used a powerful prayer to ensure they would identify themselves as they returned to hell. It was in the convent, at 9pm on December 23, 1928, that Anna Eklund would suddenly break the grip of those holding her and stand straight up on the bed, with only her heels touching. Blessing the woman with his cross, Father Reisinger would shout, quote, Pull her down, pull her down, depart ye fiends of hell, be gone, Satan, the Lion of Judah reigns. Anna's body would relax from its stiffened state and fall to the bed. A piercing sound would then fill the room, and the voices of the demons could be heard repeating their names, quote, Beelzebub, Judas, Jacob, Mina, again and again, fading each time until they could no longer be heard. After the voices had faded completely, Anna opened her eyes, smiled, and exclaimed, quote, From what a terrible burden have I been freed at last! My Jesus, mercy! Praise to be Jesus Christ! And with that, Anna Eklund, had been freed of the evil force that had dwelt inside of her for so many years. There's not much to tell about her life afterwards. Most reports state that she lived out the rest of her days happily, with a, quote, few minor symptoms of possession, but was never known to experience anything like she had for a majority of her life. She lived until the age of 59 and passed away on July 3rd, 1941. And that is the story of the exorcism of Emma Schmidt.
a.k.a. Anna Eklund. The pseudonym of Anna was given to Emma to protect her identity. The question now is, did all this really happen? Documented possessions are nothing uncommon. This one in particular is one of the most widely known alongside the 1940s exorcism of Roland Doe and the 1975 and 76 exorcism of Annalise McKell. The claims of Roland Doe, another pseudonym, have been widely disputed over the years. Despite an individual being named recently as allegedly being the 14-year-old Roland Doe, the validity of his possession, and that an exorcism ever even occurred, has been extensively disputed by authors Mark Opsusnick and Thomas B. Allen, as well as famous skeptic Joe Nickel, all of which have done extensive research into the event. Annalise McKell, on the other hand, there is proof that an exorcism occurred, as it has been widely documented, and you can easily find the real audio recordings on places such as YouTube. Unlike the purported cases of Roland Doe and Anna Eklund, Annalise did not survive her exorcism. Annalise, a 25-year-old German woman, had actually been diagnosed with epileptic psychosis caused by a temporal lobe epilepsy, as well as depression, after being prescribed medication and treatment, which failed to help, Annalise and her family appealed to the Catholic Church, who concluded she was possessed. After 67 exorcism rites, Annalise unfortunately died of extreme dehydration and malnourishment. Her parents, and the priests involved, were both convicted of negligent homicide, and no tangible proof of possession was ever discovered. Just a poor, mentally ill young woman who didn't get the prolonged treatment she needed in a time when even the Catholic Church should have known better. In the case of Anna Eklund and the Erling exorcism, it definitely runs more parallels with Roland Doe, whereas all we really know is what was told to us by the Church and what was written in Begone Satan. Starting with Emma Schmidt herself, remember, this is Anna's real name, I did some looking on genealogy and ancestor sites, which I am still learning how to navigate such things. But I found a number of Emma Schmitz who resided in Wisconsin during this time. Problem is that I can never find one that fit all of the historical attributes of the one in our tale. One might share this Emma's birth date, or perhaps a father named Jacob. All resided in or around Marathon, or were born in Milwaukee. But I never could find a single one who fits all the attributes of the possessed girl on one single record. Furthermore, the ages and begone Satan for Emma don't make a lot of sense. Reportedly, Emma became possessed the first time at age 14, and was exercised in 1912 at the same age. Problem is, she was reportedly born in 1882, making her 30 years old in 1912. As stated before, a tagline on Begone Satan states that Emma was tormented from her 16th year to her 40th year. That puts Emma as being possessed the second time for 24 years, which if she became possessed in 1914, that has her being exercised in 1938, after Begone Satan was already published. In reality, based off Emma's birth year, she would have became possessed again at 32 in 1914 and was exercised in 1928 at the age of 46. 
The only part of the timeline that makes sense with her age is being 59 at the time of her death in 1941. One could argue that the confusion is deliberate to maybe further hide, which Emma Schmidt was the possessed Anna Eklund, but that's merely speculation on my part. I also considered that it was a translation error from German to English, but it just seems to be the accepted timeline by everyone, so I can only assume it was written that way in the original German printing as well. As far as Emma Schmidt or Anna Eklund herself, that's about all I can poke holes in when it comes to anything with her. The other thing I want to look at as a whole is Begone Satan. This is essentially the sole resource available to the public that tells what happened in Erling, Iowa. It's based off accounts of those present and was published in 1935, seven years after the exorcism. It's unclear what year Father Vogel spoke with the individuals present. If it was something like 1933 or 1934, you're already several years down the road. You can't tell me you're going to get a straight story from something like this based off several witness perspectives years later. I really don't know how to talk about Begone Satan without just ragging on it. The whole account comes in at about 46 pages. Most of it's spent sensationalizing its characters and talking about how awesome the Catholic Church is. At best, it's a half-assed retelling of events mixed with blatant propaganda. If it was written in the 1980s, it would almost seem like a parody of satanic panic propaganda. Don't take my word for it, though. It's available to read online for free, or you can buy it off Amazon for around $6, like I did, solely just so I could highlight passages in the book. I'll link both in the show notes, though. I also really did only focus on the events involving the exorcism and the priests. There are a lot of passages in the pamphlet that were that would require a greater knowledge of Catholic practices than I have to reiterate correctly, and they're mostly supplemental and not required for what I'm doing here as far as the overall narrative. Obviously, I didn't do a super in-depth analysis, as that wasn't really my purpose here. I just wanted to tell some good old-fashioned Midwest lore. But I did feel compelled to point a few things out, as well as give a little input as to what I thought about the legitimacy of the whole thing. All in all, there probably was a woman named Emma who was most likely suffering from some sort of mental illness. And since reliable mental health services were practically non-existent at the time, she was most likely pegged as being possessed. Some sort of exorcism was probably attempted, and no matter what actually occurred in the halls of that Franciscan convent, it was most likely over-exaggerated and unfortunately over-sensationalized for the sake of propaganda. And that brings us to the end of the first Patreon episode. As Midwest Mystery Files is a true crime-based and deals with heavy topics, I like to keep a professional and serious tone, so I'd like to have a little more fun with these bonus episodes. So as long as you, the listeners, enjoy this type of bonus content, it's what I'll keep doing. If not, though, your input is always welcome. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and we'll be back with something new next month.